This is Speaking Easy Theology with Chris Green. So, Chris, you were down at your your first convention as uh, a bishop. And <laughs> so you're like a, a few months into being a bishop and you've already been to a bishop's convention and, and you were you, you were preaching at that, right? And this was in Kansas, right? Hutchison, Kansas, yeah. yeah. Their bishop, Quentin Moore, was hosting this year. Mm. He's presiding bishop for the CEC and this year the yeah, they were they were hosting the event. So I, I was preaching the Eucharist service Thursday morning, I believe. Although right now, all my days are running together, so don't quote me on that. <laughs> yeah, and and I only actually located exactly where you were so that I could then ask. But you're not in Kansas anymore, right? <laughs> <laughs> I'm indeed not in Kansas anymore. Um, so I, I got to listen into parts of the sermon. There was a couple of glitches on the live stream, so I think I, I lost all of the major twists. And so I, I chased you down afterwards and said, "Can I can I have the text of this sermon?" And I was deeply impacted by, I, I think, the way the sermons probably spoke to me. And w- what I heard is, and I think you framed it this way in conversation to me, so you're, you're a few months into your consecration as a bishop. You are a theologian and have been a theologian for a lot longer than you've been a bishop. And I think your, your sermon was a, a new bishop calling for the significance of theology and orthodoxy. And and that's felt like that's what you were trying to do in this sermon. I think that's exactly right. I I don't know that I would have recognized that. I don't know that was conscious going into the event, you know, going into the sermon or even the convocation. I didn't know I was going to be preaching until the night before. So, you know, it wasn't, it was not intended on my part, but I do think that's what happened. Yes. Hmm. And so what you did with the sermon is you you opened it with three statements. The first one was was phenomenal. It's so phenomenal that I immediately sort of extracted it and put it into my sermon for for the weekend because I was thinking this this quote and statement must be used again. You then offered a second statement which was possibly even more hair-raising than the first statement. (laughs) And then you offered the third statement. And as you were beginning to offer the third statement, the live stream dropped, right? And and I could only assume that like somehow just this third statement was going to be so Mm. (laughs) hair-raising that it was. And then so when you later sent me the text, I realized that the third statement was intentionally designed to sort of <laughs> challenge us in a different, probably yeah. still hair raising, just maybe just different hairs <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> yes, right. from the top of the head to the back of the neck, maybe, or right. something like that. Oh, I think that's right. So, so how about, because I, I realized, you know, not everybody obviously is going to have listened to this sermon. Can I, can I read the first two statements at least? And, and then we go, and, and you can offer some comment on, on them as, as we sort of build our way through them. So the first statement's from Patriarch Ignatius of Latakia from the World Council of Churches meeting in 1968. Is that right? Yes, that's right. So it says this, without the Holy Spirit, God is far away. Christ stays in the past. The gospel is a dead letter. The church is simply an organization. Authority, a matter of domination. Mission, a matter of propaganda. Liturgy is only nostalgia. And Christian living is slave morality. Mm. But with the Holy Spirit, God is with us. The universe is resurrected 
and groans with the birth pangs of the kingdom. The risen Christ is here. The gospel is a living force. The church is a communion in the life of the Trinity, the body of the living Christ. (laughs) Authority is a service that liberates. Mission is Pentecost. The liturgy is memory and anticipation. And human action is God's work in the world. (laughs) Incredible, man. That's incredible. (laughs) And I realized I almost caught myself out there, Chris. I... I shared this with my own church community and had had read it and read it and heard you read it and read it, but I'd never read it myself publicly. And halfway through the reading of this for the first time publicly, my emotion got the better of me. And when it got to that moment of the risen Christ statement, I was like, oh my goodness, I was overwhelmed by it. And I'd forgotten about that until two seconds ago when I started recording it <laughs> right now. And I was like, oh, wait. I, can I do this? <laughs> can, I, can I read this just now? Yeah. Um, do you want to offer any comment on that before we jump to the second statement? Because it's stunning. It is stunning. I, I don't remember what year this would have been, but I, I heard Metropolitan Callistos Ware reference it mm. for the first time. I think I think this would have been early two thousands when right. I when I heard it first, and it was yeah, breathtaking. Breathtaking mm. because there's there's a way in it, you know it cuts to the bone as we say right that mm. th- this mm. this is what makes the difference this presence and work yeah. of the work of the spirit and as a Pentecostal of course I couldn't help but resonate with it like be yeah be over be overwhelmed by it but there's and, and I assume we'll get to this at some point in our conversation today there's challenge to it for the pentecostal though as well there's oh, yes. there's a there's some early amens in that second half you know but then there's some bits where you're like wait a minute i think he's saying something here and i'm not sure <laughs> i'm not sure i'm going to completely agree with with what he's going to say in those sort of moments so but, but let's let's come back to that then because in the second statement now talk me through this a little bit because i'd love to hear before i read the statement People, I've heard bits of this statement before, and as you mentioned in the sermon, think of it as Oscar Romero, right? Yes. But it's not quite that simple. Is that correct? Well, it it looks, from what what I can tell, this was actually written for a Cardinal Dearden who was preaching, I think this was the late 1970s, it might have been 78, 79. I had it in my notes, but I don't have those in front of me. Yeah, it's 79 you have in the notes. Okay, okay. Then what what he's arguing or what he's doing is preaching a mass for deceased priests. So it's you know, Cardinal Dearden is, and the father who had helped write the homily for him had actually written this as part of that homily. And at some point, and I I think Oscar Romero even published it in a book of his, mm-hmm. which is why it's associated with him. But. Mm-hmm. Again, you can't quite quote me on that. You'll have to track it down yourselves. But it—it yeah. it is. I mean, when I first heard it, which again would have been sometime in the early two thousands, I think it was shared with us as a prayer of Oscar Romero, mm-hmm. um, who, you know, if you don't know, you should know his story, <laughs> and w- which which had has its own kind of weight that that yeah. that he would identify himself with this prayer. But actually, you know, the history is. There's a long history there that goes back to some to some priest working to help mm. the cardinal preach this mass for the priests who've died. Yes, yeah. 
as as one of your clergy, on the behalf of all of our clergy, is this your vision of the future for us that w- we write sermons, y- you we give them to you, and then somebody steals them from you and publishes them in a book, or or can we invert that the other way around and we just steal your sermons? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Either, I actually am all right. I guess either way. I mean, I still enjoy the process of of writing, although I'm sure there are lots and lots of people who are like, no, you should definitely let other people write your homilies for you. (laughs) But if I had stopped, for instance, if I had stopped this sermon after sharing those two quotes, I'm pretty sure I would have had, would have had everyone clapping and standing and quite pleased. Uh, well, let me read this quote, and then we'll get to the to the quote that even the internet thought was too much and, and cut off. So, so this is this is the quote. Is. Yeah, the <laughs> algorithm is. was not going to allow it. That's that's <laughs> true. So, this is the quote or the statement rather from from Cardinal Dearden's homily. It helps now and then to step back and take a long view. The kingdom is not only beyond our efforts; it is even beyond our vision. We accomplish in our lifetime only a tiny fraction of the magnificent enterprise that is God's work. Nothing we do is complete, which is a way of saying that the kingdom always lies beyond us. No statement says all that could be said. No prayer fully expresses our faith. No confession brings perfection. No pastoral visit brings wholeness. No program accomplishes the church's mission. No set of goals and objectives includes everything. This is what we're about. We plant the seeds that one day will grow. We water seeds already planted, knowing they hold future promise. We lay foundations that will need further development. We provide yeast that produces far beyond our capabilities. We cannot do everything, and there is a sense of liberation in realizing that. This enables us to do something and to do it very well. It may be incomplete, but it is a beginning, a step along the way, an opportunity for the Lord's grace to enter and do the rest. We may never see the end results, but that is the difference between master builder and the worker. We are workers, not master builders. Ministers, not messiahs. We are prophets of a future, not our own. Beautiful. <laughs> yeah, and again, <laughs> if we stop there, if we, it's the way we should stop the podcast right at this point. Like, just let let that settle with people. Yeah, yeah. I mean, because I, I mean, I think they're, I think they're both true. What I did in the sermon is to say, you know, hear these, say amen to them, but also consider how they're related, and specifically mm. how they're related to. This third quote from mm-hmm. Robert Jensen, which, as you said, was was not heard by anyone watching online, <laughs> if if indeed by anyone in the room. <laughs> so yeah, so again, let's. Do you want to read the Jensen quote, or do you want me to read it? What's yeah? Why don't why don't you if you've got it in front of you? Read yeah, it, yeah, I do, we'll, I do. So so this you said you said this third statement is I warn you quite the sanctified letdown. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Well, that's exactly right. And here it is. The preaching and liturgical practice and pastoral care that will liberate from superstition, 
Is preaching and liturgy and counseling inspired and normed by the strictest Cyrillian Christological orthodoxy? <laughs> oh, I love it so much. And I love it all the more when set over against, you know, the the, the splendor of yes. the other poems. Yes. Know, yeah. And they it's, are poems. Yes. It it feels, I mean, like metaphorically, it's like when you go to buy a new car and the last thing they tell you is the price. <laughs> right. It is a bit like that, actually. Yes. It's like if you said amen to, to heated seats you know, and climate control, guess what it's going to cost you? Christological orthodoxy. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, that's it. Right. And then what I the, the text just happened to be that day, the first Corinthians 12, one to nine, mm-hmm. which were. Would you know? Again, all of us who've even been in shouting distance of a Pentecostal church, which is quite <laughs> the distance, it turns out, it's quite a, quite a broad space. <laughs> we know that text, and the gospel is the story of the woman with the issue of blood that comes, you know, right in the midst of Jesus on his way to Jairus's house to heal Jairus's daughter. Mm-hmm. Which again is a a classic text, right? I mean, it's a it's a absolutely central text for Pentecostal and evangelical spirituality and preaching. And then the old Testament reading for the day was this, was the story of the reform of Josiah, which is, Mm. I mean, heavy and dark. I mean, terribly daunting, but that image of tearing down idols, restoring the Holy rebuilding the altars. I mean, that, that theme is also, you know, basic to the spirituality and theology that shaped me that, you know, that was that I cut my teeth on. Yeah. It's just, as I read those texts, knowing, knowing that those were going to be the texts for the following day, the night before, as I read over them, I mean, I, almost immediately I realized we had come to believe that that's how reform happens. Like you, mm-hmm. you're people of the spirit in the first Corinthians 12 sense, people who, who are operating in the gifts of the spirit and you're people who are, pressing through the crowd to touch Jesus. And if you combine that passion for Jesus with the charismatic life, what you bring about is reform. Mm-hmm. And that that in a way has been true historically and can be true contextually. But what happens to the people who consider themselves reformers? So I, I think the, the question that I felt lodge in me was who reforms the reformers? Who mm. who restores those who've come to regard themselves as the restorers of the faith? And as soon as that question landed in me, I, I my mind was returned to that statement by Jens that I had been reading for another purpose, something else that I was writing. Like as soon as that question kind of resonated in me, and I recognized this is the question I'm I'm faced with. Mm. I remembered that line from Jensen and which, which it made me giggle when I read it, you know, for the first time completely out of the context of this sermon. But when I read it in the context of the sermon, I realized, okay, this, this is, this is where we as people who have bet on our spirituality, people who have regarded theology as at best secondary work, you know, it's, Mm. it's not crucial 
orthodoxy is not crucial, at least orthodoxy in a traditional sense. Like there are things some of our people are, are very much committed to that they call orthodoxy, but just in, in no case does that actually have anything to do with traditional Christian teaching, right? It's just, uh, it happens to be what, what in, to put it a little, I mean, a little smart aleck here, but often in our circles, when the word orthodoxy is used, what we mean is those opinions of my own that will not be questioned. (laughs) Just to let everybody know, by orthodoxy, I mean, I'm not willing to discuss with you my opinions about this, whether or not they might be right or wrong. But there's no real historical depth or dogmatic depth to what we mean when we say orthodoxy. But I think Jens is right. I think Jens is absolutely right that preaching and liturgy and counseling that is cut loose or drifts free from what the tradition specifically the Cyrillian tradition has said about Jesus as the one in whom the divine and the human commune, fully commune, without competition, without dissonance, without one swamping the other or overwhelming the other. Like if we don't say that, if we don't let that be the rule by which we say everything else, then then our preaching, our liturgy, and our counseling will go wrong because it will assume that there is a competition, there's a rivalry between God and us, in which at some point someone has to lose. Either God gets his way and we do not, we're dominated by God, or we get our way and God does not, and God is left out in the cold by our our lack of faith, our disobedience, you know, our, our lack of concern. And all the way through, we will be imagining preaching and liturgy and counseling and prayer in all of its forms as the kind of the fight between the divine and the human, between what it is that God wants and what it is that I want. And, you know, between the divine, between the, the holy and the profane, between the sacred and the secular. And like, we'll, we'll just run through every problem, assuming that, mm. that competition and conflict that is not there. And we would know is not there if we, if our hearts and minds were shaped by a vision of Christ that that Cyrillian tradition gives us, right? That, mm-hmm. that Jesus is fully human and fully divine both at once without, without any kind of disruption or disharmony. Do you, the way you were framing it there, I mean, this part of me wonders whether when we hear reform, thinking about Josiah, how we tend to read the stories of people like Josiah, but you know, Josiah can be replaced with Calvin and Luther and, you know, you know, anybody else really. Do you think we read reform within a sort of progress model mindset where the assumption is that correct is ahead of us, never behind us. And therefore reform will, will always be necessary to drive us towards I, I think I'm probably thinking within a sort of modernist mm-hmm. progression model that, that that we, and I wonder if that damages us hearing what Jens is getting. Yeah, at. yeah, yeah. That's part of the problem. I agree. Uh, although I will say, and I mean, this is a you know one of those soapboxes. I guess I was going to say dead horses, but gosh, what a terrible image. Let's try to move beyond <laughs> that. I mean, the horse is already dead. Stop, <laughs> stop wailing on it. But the you know, soapbox issues for me 
is that I, I don't think the people we live and with whom we live and have our being, I don't think many, if any of them have a coherent view of reality. Like I, I don't think coherence is valued. Like mm-hmm. I, I think we say what we need to say in the moment. So yes, I do think many of us do value, you know, have a kind of view of progress, right? That the best is always ahead of us and not behind us. And yes, absolutely true. And on many fronts, much of the time, that is exactly what we're going to say and do. Mm. But I also think there are ways in which we have very idealized views of the past, especially, Mm. you know, the past of our country, the past Mm. of the church that we appeal to, again, at other times, in other ways, without any real thought about how that coheres or fails to cohere with what we believe about the future. <laughs> right? Again, I, I do not think it's possible to overstate how mindless our beliefs really are most of the time. Like we, we're just reacting to whatever's right in front of us. Mm-hmm. And we believe whatever it is we feel when you've said something that causes a disturbance. Right. Okay. So I, I, I know that's not true of everyone everywhere, but it is, I think, overwhelmingly true. I, I don't know. I think I can count on one hand the people I've had conversation with about any of these issues for very long who were willing to hold to that for the sake of coherence, right? Even though it meant in other ways they were, you know, they were forced to take seriously beliefs they didn't want to take seriously. I, I, I don't think, I think part of being modern evangelical folks, we, we do not feel the pressure to make sense. <laughs> like, like we do like, or to, or just be consistent. Like if, if I believe X and believing X means I shouldn't be able to believe Y, but I happen to think I can. <laughs> and it doesn't matter if you show me that it's logically and theologically and philosophically incoherent. Is I'm not losing sleep over it, and that's enough. I, and I, I think it's we we are, you know, to use a kind of pop term, we've been post truth for a long time in that sense. Like we, mm. if I'm comfortable with believing it, if I can hold two opinions that shouldn't be held together, but I can do it, then who are you to say, or who is anyone to say that I can't? And that's part of that's part of our problem, right? Like that that our, our we're we're deeply incoherent, and and I do believe that that incoherence still still affects us, even if we say it doesn't, even if we don't know that we're feeling it. I think that that kind of disharmony and and dissonance is our our deep hearts sense it, our bodies know it, and it does. I think it does work on us. It does erode us in a way, even if we don't know that that's what's happening i'm I'm tempted to roll back into our conversation in the previous episode about how we react or sometimes don't react to sin when when you talk there about reacting to what i feel when you said something that disturbs me and how so often our reactions are wrong because what we think we're reacting to and what we think is causing us problems is maybe not what's actually mm-hmm. you know is it you know I, I i is it is it the wrong thing that's causing a reaction in me 
or is it that I'm drawing the wrong conclusions from the thing that's happening and that's and that's causing that's, that's causing these feelings that I don't really know what to do with. I I, I feel like I want to ask you almost to unpack that a little bit more <laughs> before yeah. because I think this is key for us to then circle around and say, okay, so what is Jensen actually saying to us? Let's let's dig through some of our reactions to words like cerulean mm. Christological orthodoxy, right? Yeah. Well, and, and I mean, I think the trigger word for most of us is going to be the word orthodoxy. Yes, yes. But for Jens to not only say we need to be orthodox, but to press the point with yes. Christological orthodoxy in the cerulean tradition, I mean, that, that you know, feels like overkill. And I, I think some of it is the noetic and affective effects of sin. So I, th- I think sin, both the, the ways in which we're sinned against and the ways in which we sin, I think it, it warps and wicks our our imaginations, which mean the way that we think and the way that we feel is not quite true. It's not quite attuned. It's mm maybe wildly out of tune or just a bit too sharp or too flat, but still not quite, you know, on, on note. And therefore we miss here, right? Mm-hmm. We overhear or we underhear what, it, what is being said. And I, I think almost certainly it's possible, you know, we can be triggered because of what we're feeling is, is wrong or we, we fail to be moved when we should be moved because sin has deadened us in some way. I think, I think sin, especially long-term serious sin, can really affect mm. the way that we apprehend the world, the way that we feel our sense of the world at that kind of deep, mm. affective level. But I also think we sometimes are feeling the right thing. We're just misinterpreting it because, our again, our minds are not attuned properly. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're hearing a sour note when the note isn't sour. It's, you know, it's, it's our lack of attention. Yeah. It's, we're not, we're not attuned. The problem is not in what's being played, but in our hearing, you know, that our, yes. that our hearing has been damaged in one way or another by sin. And, and therefore we, we misread our own reactions. So mm-hmm. I, I think for a lot of people, when they're responding to orthodoxy, you know, if that word is triggering for them or responding to doctrine, that response may very well be at the, at the level of the heart, a good response. It's mm-hmm. what we're making of that response that misleads mm-hmm. us because we, we jump to the conclusion, Oh, my read of this is right because my, my, my reaction to it is strong. And mm-hmm. I mean, I, I think that we make that mistake, not only in terms of what we're reacting against, but what we're reacting to that it's very possible to hear something that we love, that we delight in. And because we delight in it, we assume that the reason we give ourselves for why we delight in it must be trustworthy. So the strength of our emotional response, positive or negative, then makes us think that our immediate thought about that is the trustworthy one. Mm-hmm. But I, I, I mean, that's foolish. <laughs> there are many, many, many things that move me deeply that I don't fully understand or clearly understand why they move me deeply. Yeah, And it's it's absolutely essential for me to know if I am disturbed, mm-hmm. but to leave room to discern why I am disturbed. Yeah. If I am, I am. And I, I shouldn't pretend otherwise, but I can't jump from that deep disturbance to trusting too quickly mm-hmm. the reading I give to it. 
because I'm, I'm very likely going to misread why I'm so deeply disturbed or again, deeply delighted, deeply, deeply moved. I, I think there are all way, all kinds of ways in which we, we can be carried away by our feelings into trusting our reflections too quickly. Is that getting at what you're asking or did I, did I miss the yeah, mark? No, a- absolutely. So I just want to read a, a little bit. I'm just going to quote you to yourself for a second. So it's just because I think this is what you're saying. If I'm hearing you correctly, here's a line from the sermon. After you ask the question, who reforms the reformers? You say, what if our worship becomes defiled? Would we recognize it? How would we recognize it? And what would we do about it? And then you, you, you add to that these questions. You know, what happens when what passes for prophecy is no more than sharing our personal opinions in a loud, trembling voice? Or worse, when it is merely channeling the propaganda of the principalities and powers? What happens when we confuse the stirrings of the spirits of the age for the work of God, of God the Spirit? And, and I think... Yeah, I mean, this is, I, I think this is a really significant issue, particularly for those of us who are Pentecostal. Mm-hmm. I, I think we have created very fine, indistinguishable to us lines between our own moral conscience and the work of the Holy Spirit. And, and my moral reaction, and maybe I'm putting too much on the word moral there, but, but my reaction to something is correct and is mm-hmm. the spirit like if i had a dime for every time uh, a congregant across you know two different countries that i've pastored in you know has said i just that just doesn't sit right with my spirit and there's a weird sense sometimes as a pastor that you go well it didn't sit right with my spirit first either but actually i think it is the work the spirit calls us to mm-hmm. I, I can't help but notice how often in the gospels Jesus does not sit right with people's spirit. You know? <laughs> yeah, right. yeah, absolutely. I mean, he got himself killed for a reason, right? But, and I mean, I think, again, that's obviously enormously complex. I want to make sure that I emphasize it's, it's right and good. It's essential that we know when something doesn't sit right with our spirit. Like we, yeah. we, we can't press, you know, press past that quickly. If something does not sit right with us, we should attend to it. But we should attend to it prayerfully humbly, patiently, wisely, in conversation with elders and bishops and spiritual directors, mm. with those who love us and know know us in ways we don't know ourselves. I mean, yeah. I, I think the problem, and maybe we're over-reiterating this, but I think the problem is not that we feel disrupted or that something, or that we recognize this or that doesn't sit right with our spirit. It's what we make of the fact that we feel it and yes. how quickly we make of it yes. that, you know, that we draw conclusions way too fast, way yeah. too hard. I was thinking about that again, just tying our last two, this conversation, our last conversation together. I, I was thinking about the, even just like issues of the translation of scripture, for example, I, I have from time to time in my community, just offered readings from the the recent Erdman's First Nations translation of the New Testament. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I was thinking about the Ray Minicom video that you reference in your lecture that you gave yeah. that we talked about in the last, where yeah. he starts to talk about about God in language that 
is is again to my mind theologically very sound but to first listen to a white north american doesn't sound theologically yeah. orthodox i mean is that the sort of thing That's that you're exactly thinking about as well yeah yeah so like part of what i introduce in this sermon and i've talked about it many times i i think most of us have been raised in forms of christianity that are conventional we've been raised in conventionalized christianity not, again, most of the people in this conversation, obviously, that you know, who are listening to this podcast or who move in the same circles you and I move in, yeah. the we we've been conventionalized and we've confused that with traditional. But conventional Christianity is not traditional Christianity, right? And this is why it's possible to be very conservative but anti-traditional, like to mm-hmm. to to be conserving a a conventional Christianity that actually is wildly at odds Mm -hmm. with what the church has held to be or discerned to be true. Now, I want to say when I say tradition, I don't mean the most popular views of the most, or, you know, of of the Christian faith. That's that, that is conventionalism. I don't, I have a tradition. Yesterday's conventionalism. (laughs) Exactly. I don't, I don't mean yesterday's convention is the tradition now, you know, almost always a minority view. Right, it's it's the saints, the prophets, who are remaining faithful and pointing the way. The overwhelming majority of us in every generation are getting it wrong <laughs> in one way or another. Right, so it's this is I, I, I talked, I think it was last Monday at Old Roberts University. I did a PhD seminar for them on Christian readings of Israel scriptures, mm-hmm. and well, of course, one of the questions that came up as I'm talking about origin and Maximus and others is, is what about anti-Semitism? What about the anti-Semitism of the church fathers, mm-hmm. which is not quite the right term because it's, it's more anti-Judaism than it is anti-Semitism. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. more of a theological and cultural spite and condescension than it is a racial one. But, you know, leave that as distinction aside for a moment. One one of the things that I would say is that we we do have to recognize that, you know, when Chrysostom is diatribing against the Jews, or when Ephraim the Syrian is, mm-hmm. or when Augustine is fill in the blank, any of any of the fathers and those who you know belong to that ancient tradition of the Church, what they're doing there is being conventional. They're buying into the politi- the dominant mm-hmm. political paradigm of their time, and they're leveraging their office and their authority to affirm that convention mm-hmm. in so far as they're doing that, they're breaking with the spirit. They're being false to the tradition. So even though someone like St. Augustine or St. Chrysostom, of course their theology is essential to the tradition. That doesn't mean everything that they say is true to the tradition. And we have to be discerning about it. We already are discerning about that in terms of say David in the scriptures. Mm-hmm. We take the Psalms as inspired. We take the Psalms as the word of God. But not everything the character David does and says in the scriptures is therefore infallible. I mean, mm-hmm. he sins often and egregiously. And much of what he says is terrifyingly wrong. Even some of what is said in the Psalms mm-hmm. is not right. It's inspired for the reasons that we need. Like we need those words to be sayable. To, to know that they have been said, but that doesn't mean that they're true or right or good. Yeah. And 
and we so we make those distinctions already. So I I would say just like we can distinguish between David the shepherd poet and David the warrior king, and know that at the end of the day, it's David the shepherd poet who is speaking about Jesus in ways that mm. show the show for us as Christians the way we are to live, not David the conquering warrior. Mm. The same is true, you know, Chrysostom the politician talking about the Jews as a political problem is not the same as Chrysostom the preacher. And where he gets confused, we have to be able to recognize you're not being yourself. And right. that's that's how we avoid traditionalism, right? Mm-hmm. Traditionalism is the belief that the past should be the convention in every present. But again, there is not going to be a conventional Christianity that works because there's too much collusion with the status quo, with mm. the powers that be, with the principalities, the spirits of the age. Like, faithful Christianity will always be running against the grain of what the principalities and powers want, at least much of the time, if not all of the time. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't mean that Christianity cannot grow. It's just that when it's popular, it's at its greatest risk of losing its soul. Mm. And again, there are versions of Christianity that are not popular that are also deeply false, right? So this is not Mm. some, there's no easy mapping here. It's not as simple as saying, you know, if it grows, it's bad. If it's small and does not grow, it's good or vice versa. Like Mm -hmm. there are no simplicities allowed, right? If you're going to be discerning. But I I do think we, we have to keep coming back to the difference between conventional Christianity and being faithful to the tradition that's been delivered, the faith once delivered to the saints. Mm-hmm. And in that way, the creedal tradition is essential for us. Like it, it's, it's not arbitrary. It's not an imposition. It's not something alien to the life of the spirit. It is essential infrastructure for shaping our imaginations mm-hmm. so that we can recognize what God is doing. I mean, to put this just as, bluntly as I can. Like if we preached Trinity and incarnation regularly and faithfully, if we knew what we were talking about, when we talk about what it means for God to be the God he's revealed himself to be both in terms of his nature and his character, what it means to say God is father, son, and spirit again in recognizable orthodox ways. And what it means to say that Jesus is the the son of this father and the son of Mary, fully human, fully divine, one person, two natures, without confusion, without separation, mm-hmm. so on down the line. Like if we knew what we were talking about, it would shape our hearts and minds in ways. It would shape the patterns of our speech in ways that would allow us to discern reality more faithfully. Mm-hmm. So the the fact that we are simplistic and literalistic in our reading of scripture, in our reading of history, in our reading of our lives, is a direct result of the fact that we do not do doctrine well. Mm-hmm. Like if we had followed, if we had followed Jens's advice and had worked out, truly worked through Cyrillian orthodoxy, we would not be simplistic and fundamentalistic and literalistic about scripture or history or our lives. Mm-hmm. And our liturgies would reflect that, and our counseling would reflect that, mm. and our preaching would reflect that. So th- there, there's no, I mean, God is a mystery. The doctrine of the Trinity is not a mystery. Jesus is the mystery. Jesus in me is the mystery. Yeah. But incarnational theology is learnable. 
like you can teach it, you can learn it, you can read about it, you can write about it. And if you, if you learn, and as you learn that tradition, and it starts to shape your patterns of speech, it starts to shape the way that you apprehend reality, you start to be able, as the spirit breathes on you, you start to be able to apprehend all of reality that way. Mm-hmm. And I, this should be obvious. The fact that it's not obvious to us is why we're in the trouble we're in, like where we we have deep, deep dissonance between what we say and what we do, and we apprehend the world. You know, major events in the world, you know, history-making events, and small events in our lives, and small movements in our own hearts, our dreams, our conversations with our friends. Like we we misread all of that, or we read. We read it in ways that are false to the truth revealed in Jesus mm-hmm. because we do not teach what the church has taught us, what the apostles and their, and their successors said to us about what's true. And so like nothing is more practical. Nothing is more practical than talking about the creedal tradition. Mm. Now it's, it's not that getting that right will solve everything else because it, because it won't, that absolutely won't. But without doing that well, everything else is going to be unhinged. It's going to be discordant. And mm-hmm. we're, we're going to have a deeply felt incoherence. Yeah. Yeah. yeah you, you use the word in the sermon of superstitions. And yeah, that's, that's uh, Jensen's word. Yeah. That, right. That's the only thing that's going to keep us from superstitions. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so you, you say what liberates us from the superstitions of conventional Christianity is truly traditional Christianity. And, and I, as, as you're unpacking that just then it's, it, you sound like you're kind of lobbying well for, and I, I agree with this. I'm, I'm trying to, to think about its impact, even, you know, in my own life about how, it's a, it's about teaching us how to see really at some, yes. at some elemental level, isn't it? It's that, that we are conditioned and, and, and in some ways traditioned by the wrong things to, to read through particular lenses, which then make certain things look necessary and certain things look unnecessary. Like my yeah, tradition I come from. Yeah. Oh yeah, go for it. Jump in. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, no, that's right. I, I'm not to cut you off, but I think this is, this is it. Like you're putting your finger right on it. So like in the, let, let's say we're reading the stories of Joshua or the stories of the conquest and we're reading a command to destroy all the Canaanites, like wipe them out from the face of the earth. Right. And, and then we're trying to figure out how, how to read that as Christians, hmm. as Jews, you know, whatever our faith tradition is, how do, how do we read that faithfully? Does God require this? Did he require this, et cetera, et cetera. So when then as Christians, we come to Matthew's gospel and we read that there's a Canaanite woman hmm. who seeks Jesus out. Right. And cries out, son of David, have mercy on me and on my daughter. And Jesus, after a bit of back and forth, does exactly that. And does that, I think, the whole back and forth for the sake of his disciples. What Jesus is doing there in healing this Canaanite woman's daughter is preparing for a continued generation of Canaanites. Mm 
Yes. Now, theologically, if we'd done our work well, we would recognize that Jesus is the word of God, that the texts of Joshua and First and Second Samuel and Judges, all of those texts are a witness to him and what he's saying. Mm. So now, now you've got, because otherwise you're going to set Jesus over against the Father. You're going to get some version of Marcionism, softer, hard Marcionism, and you're going to separate the Trinity from, you're either going to separate the Son from the Father, or you're going to get some version of Marcionism in which the, the God of the Old Testament is not the God mm. revealed in Jesus Christ. And again, if you don't do your doctrine well, you're going to get that wrong. And you're going to get that wrong, not in like in an pedantic or academic sense. You're going to get that wrong pastorally. You're going to get that wrong in your prayer. You're going to get that wrong in your heart in a way that leaves you deeply unsettled and and disordered, right? And, And or the people around you deeply unsettled. So what we have to see then is if if Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, if he is the full revelation of God, if he and the Father and the Spirit are one, then what we see him doing in the Gospels is the way in which we know what he must have meant when he says, destroy them all. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because he, he cannot change. Right? This is what the doctrine tells us. He cannot have one time thought, I'm going to destroy all the Canaanites. Oh, wait, that didn't work. So now I will heal them. Right? Since plan A to exterminate them failed, plan B will be, I will actually continue this particular, this particular line of Canaanites. Mm-hmm. I mean, again, if we had learned our doctrine well, we would know God does not change. And Jesus is God. And the Jesus of the Gospels is the Jesus of the Torah and the Israel scriptures. And so if we had that in order, that pastoral question, that existential question would be settled for us. Mm-hmm. And if we don't have our doctrine in order, it will be unsettled. And that that's where we are. I think that we we have just... And again, by we here, I don't mean all Christians everywhere. I mean, obviously, in I'm talking about free church traditions, you know, in Western Europe, in Canada, in the U.S., in dominant forms, we have failed massively on this front, massively. And the consequences are unspeakable. Like the long-term consequences of this are, are we distort what the gospel is. So if we go back to that original poem, the one that I started the sermon with, without the Holy Spirit, God is far away, but with the Holy Mm -hmm. Spirit, God is near. The gospel is a living force. The work of our work is God's work in the world. All of those statements, the liturgy is anticipation and memory and Mm -hmm. every, everything that we want to say amen to, like we won't know what those things are if we don't tradition well. Yes. Yes. Would we talk, we won't know what the word Trinity means. I mean, I don't know. How many people in our churches right now have, I mean, they recognize the word Trinity, but what could they say about it other than it's a mystery? And again, yes, God as Trinity, that is mystery and beyond mystery, but the doctrine of the Trinity is not a mystery. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And the fact that the overwhelming majority of our ministers cannot even begin to articulate what that might mean, or, or they only appeal to it in an academic sense 
the fact that those are the options. Either we don't know how to talk about it at all, except in, in a kind of joke, or we talk about it in a condescending tone as academics who figured it out and other people just aren't bright enough or sharp enough to, to catch up. Yeah. Those are the options. Shows how far cut off we are from the responsibility to teach the faith, to learn the faith and to teach it. And how essential learning the faith and teaching it is to the work that's been entrusted to the church in the world. I'll say one more thing. This is why I think many, many, many of us, we haven't seen the church. What we've seen are parachurch ministries that are really mm. good at doing particular services. Yeah. So, you know, this or that form of prayer or prophecy or healing or outreach, but we have not seen the witness of the church as mm. the body of Christ in the world, the teaching of Christ in the world. And parachurch ministry cut off from the full-bodied witness of the church drifts. It, it becomes disoriented, and we forget what's most important. And I, this is, I, I don't think overstatement. Like we've gotten ourselves over time. We've we free church folks, Western Europe, Canada, the U.S. Like we've gotten ourselves. Many of us have gotten ourselves at least into a place where the more essential and fundamental something is, the less we understand it and talk about it. Yeah. 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 And that's true. Not only doctrinally, it's true pastorally. It's true culturally. It's true biblically. Like we, we're cut off from the depths. And this is something that comes up a lot in our conversations. We don't do well at the depths of suffering any more than we do well at the depths of doctrine and for the same reasons, because mm -hmm. our hearts and minds, our imaginations have not been shaped by the truth. Mm. Right. We, we have, we've dealt in shallow truths, shallow understandings of the truth and thinking that we would still have the depth of heart, the depth of spirit to pray deeply, to counsel carefully and, compassionately but you can't if your if your heart if your theology is not deeply rooted in the revelation of god then your prayer and your preaching your prophecy your counsel like all of that is going to get shallower and shallower and more and more fragmented mm -hmm. too yeah and and that's i think where we are now it doesn't mean you know another mark of it is we start to confuse things we don't really understand for depth <laughs> Yeah. But, I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've heard people say, oh, that's deep. And what they really mean is I don't understand it. Yeah. yeah. Right. But depth is not about something I can't understand. It's a recognition that this understanding, precisely because I can understand some of it, it exceeds. You know, it, it's swallowing me up. Yeah. And, you know, again, that point about mystery is that is not something that can't be known. It's something that is so knowable. It can't be known exhaustively. Right, there's too much to know, not that there's nothing there that can be understood. I know we've got to stop, but you know, hopefully that's coming through. We and we need soon to have a follow-up conversation kind of on what the responsibility of the ordained ministry is mm -hmm. to this tradition. But you know, we'll hold that for another day. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I my goodness, that's <laughs> I was I think there's an Oscar Wilde quote out there, Chris. Which I think it's wild, where he says a centipede is called the centipede because it has a hundred legs, and a millipede is called a millipede 
because the man that named it knew that most people couldn't count beyond a hundred. And, and uh, you know, and that, that thought about deep, it's like, deep. Yes, that's so good. Yes. <laughs> that's so good. It's like, right. And I mean, you think about, oh, gosh, I love that so much. I've never heard that before. The, the ways in which what passes for deep teaching in our churches is just either nonsense. You know, that old clip of, Benny Hinn talking about the nine persons of the Trinity <laughs> or which, you know, he repented of, but all, or just weirdness, just, yeah. you know, it's just, yeah. it's either. And, and that, but that's not depth. Like depth is talking about God as she, as he has shown himself to be mm-hmm. and talking about God as, she, as he's shown himself to be in ways the church has learned over time are yeah. faithful to that. Yes. And the fact that we are, you know, I read just the other day the Pentecostal Holiness Church, which is the denomination that, that shaped me most directly growing up. In one of their manuals that you know they give to members and to ministers, they make this statement. Talk, they're talking about the history of the denomination. They make the statement that the Pentecostal Holiness Church affirms the historic Christian faith, hmm. and that the the work of doctrine is not cold and stale it's essential because Mm -hmm. it is and this i think i have this quote exactly right it is doctrine is the rails on which the wheels of evangelism turn Mm -hmm. but they say but they say that we've primarily focused on the teachings of the holiness and pentecostal and healing revivals that have come Mm -hmm. now there are two problems there that should be leaping off the page at us the first one is that metaphor of doctrine is the rails on which the wheels of evangelism turn. Like when you're thinking that mechanistically, that mm. that pragmatically, mm. the doctrine's purpose is to make us make it so that we do this other work better and faster. Yeah. I mean, what's happened to trains in our countries? <laughs> right. In yeah. most places, they've gone they've gone the way of the of the wagon. <laughs> Because they're they're outmoded, right? We found new modalities where we can get there faster. We don't need rails. So if the moment we decide, well, evangelism is the point, not doctrine. And if I can get evangelism done without these rails, well, well then I'll just do away with them. Why wouldn't I? Because the goal is evangelism, right? It's it's and that scene. Are- it's that scene at the end of Back to the Future. You know, where we're going, we don't need roads, and so. <laughs> Ironically, it's the perfect metaphor for what they're not trying to achieve in the statement. (laughs) Strikingly, yes. I mean, and and to not kind of have a sense of irony about it, right? To recognize, (laughs) wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, right? Instead of evangelism being the witness to a God we will not be able to speak rightly about without doctrine. And therefore, evangelism depends in every way on our speech being patterned by the truth revealed yes. and taught by the spirit. Then of course, I mean, we're going to, what counts as evangelism is, is going to switch without us realizing it. Right. Yeah. One thing is going to become another and we're not going to know that that's what's happened. And that has, that is exactly what's happened and continues to happen and happens more and more rapidly again, without us having, you know, mm-hmm. any sense at, at all of how ironic and tragic it is. Mm. So, I, without trying to drag us further down into 
the discussion as we're trying to sort of wrap things up, I, I find myself, I have a couple of examples, and there are numerous examples in mind, where problems with God are solved, and all of this is with much gesticulation of air quotes, <laughs> problems <laughs> solved, right? Where, And I feel this sometimes as a theologian where I, I see a problem solved. You know, and the one you used is the perfect example, the God of the Old Testament versus the God yes. revealed in Jesus. Yes. And, and so then we start doing things. I think of famous popular examples. Well, what if God doesn't actually know the future? What if God, you know, and, and you think, oh, so you have, you have quite literally closed that door apparently successfully, but you closed it so hard, the whole barn fell down around about you. And, and so my question, I suppose, is, and I don't know if I'm forming this correctly, is, is, is faith then, at some level in this conversation, to trust that there is a better answer that may take us deeper than the question conventionalism is asking us? And yeah, well, yeah, absolutely. It'll take us somewhere else altogether. I mean, the the questions of conventional Christianity, not just the answers, the questions are wrong. Yes, the controversies are wrong. Like the the the, the ways in which we feel, like both the certainties it give us gives us and the uncertainties are wrong. Like conventional Christianity, in every case, is is a bad Christianity. You know, it's <laughs> it's a Christianism, not a Christianity. It, it is. It is not, the church cannot be the church if it's being conventional. Mm. It, its witness will be disordered mm. because it's not giving witness to Jesus and Jesus alone as Lord of all. It's giving witness to Jesus as he fits within the rules of the age mm. with the powers that are arrayed around us. So it'll be Jesus and country or Jesus and race or Jesus and my business or you know whatever it is whatever other lords have arrayed in our lives mm. that have our allegiance conventional christianity tells us we can have jesus and those lords too mm. and i mean our preachers have always known that's what we're up against i mean i think even very popular preachers preach that message all the time mm -hmm. but our churches very rarely come around to living lives that are faithful faithfully subversive of the conventions because the costs are high, right? If you, if you are, and again, I want to say this too, the goal here is not traditionalism. That's just another form of conventionalism. And the goal is not to simply be unconventional. It's not, you know, not simply to break with the dominant patterns. That in itself is not enough. The goal is to be faithful to the spirit and the gospel that the spirit has given us and the witness the pattern of speech to use Paul's language that's been entrusted to us. I mean, that that's the goal. If we do that, it will be unconventional. It will have to be unconventional in whatever time and place we find ourselves. And it will also not be traditionalistic because it'll be, hmm. it will be missional. It will be pastoral. I mean, this is one of the things I said in my session that afternoon at the convocation that the primary way we slip into conventionalism is that we let our missional and pastoral concerns carry us away. Like we, we think what we're doing is, is necessary for the sake of the outcome we see as needed. Hmm. And instead of trusting that, no, if we remain faithful to what has been entrusted to us, 
the spirit will make a way. We we end up making pragmatic decisions. Again, back to that image of the rails and evangelism. Right? It, if the if everything that's driving us is outcome, 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 hmm. then of course we're gonna we're gonna make compromises to get those outcomes. So some of this has to do with radical trust that the future is the Lord's and that we we don't make our own. We are prophets of a future, not our own. Mm-hmm. Right. But we we can only do that again if we have a robust sense, or at least we can only do it and we can only talk about doing it in ways that are coherent. If we know that God doesn't change, God is all powerful, that mm-hmm. God is the one for whom nothing is impossible, like like we we have to to know. I mean, this it sounds absurd to say it out loud, but we live as if the truth about God and being able to speak sensibly about the truth about God is not essential to prayer, to loving our neighbors, to walking in the spirit. And it, it makes us crazy. It makes us do and say crazy things. It makes our lives chaotic Hmm. because we end up saying and doing things that we shouldn't be saying and doing and keeps us from saying and doing things we should be saying and doing because we are not truthful. And truthfulness requires us to to know what we're saying and to know what we do not know, mm. to know when we've come up against something that we don't understand, and and to let the understanding of this truth impinge on what we're facing at the moment. And somehow we've we've lost that truthfulness. Mm. And again, I, I don't think you can exaggerate the consequences of that. I think it does something to to the mind and the heart. I think it, it, it ruptures us. And again, that is felt at some deep level, even Mm -hmm. where it's not named. I've been wrestling since I heard the sermon, read the sermon. And, and the great thing about being the editor of your podcast is if this is the completely wrong thing to say, I can edit this out and no one will ever know. But (laughs) Patriarch Ignatius's statement about the vast contrast of what happens with or without the Holy Spirit. Right? Yeah. Um, Cardinal Dearden's homily about the prophets of a future, not our own. And then Jensen's comment about orthodoxy. I, I've been playing around with this phrase, and so I'm just going to put it out there, that it almost feels like what you're saying is that catechesis is the work of the prophet. Hmm. <laughs> yeah. Man, yes. Yes. Well, at least this. That without the catechist, the prophet will be a false prophet. Okay. Hmm. I mean, I, I love yeah, I, I love what you're saying. I think that's it. But what I want to insist upon, make sure people are hearing, is that you cannot have one without this ministry. You can't have the one without this ministry being essential. So if we do catechism, but catechism is not all. There's more to there's more to Christian mm-hmm. ministry than catechizing well, but if you do not catechize well, you won't do anything else well. Mm. And therefore, what could be more prophetic than catechetical work? Mm. And catechetical work looks like a lot of things. I mean, it, it happens liturgically, it happens practically, it happens through mentoring and modeling and spiritual direction. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, you've got to have people who know what they're talking about and who know how to talk about it in a spirit that allows that to be grasped deeply 
mm-hmm. by others. I mean, think about what Paul says to Timothy. Pay attention to what I've taught you and teach it to other people. Like what we call followers of Jesus is disciples, students, learners. Jesus is many things, but at the heart of Jesus' ministry, he is a teacher. This I think we've talked about this, but it, it blows me back that I grew up amongst people who were deeply devoted to Jesus. They loved Jesus. But we didn't really care much at all for Jesus' teachings. We cared about his stories. We loved his miracles. We were deeply grateful for his life and death. But we didn't really give a darn about his teaching. Mm. We did not take it seriously. And again, we loved him. We, we were constantly talking about his example, his especially the example of his prayer and his miracle working. Mm. But we did not take seriously that he was wise and that what he said mattered and that we were responsible to understand it. Mm. And the same is true with all other teachers, right? We, we were drawn to prophets, but not, not teachers. I mean, I, I remember, I mean, to be very, very, very vulnerable here. I remember when I was, I was probably 17 or 18, I was working at this church preaching, working with the youth, but also preaching in the adult services. And the pastor there said to me one day, he's like, Chris, you're a good preacher, but you're called to be a teacher. And it stung. Talk about not sitting well with my spirit. Like it stung so deeply because what I read it as was you're not good at the thing we all want to be good at. You're good at something else that no one really gives, you know, to no one cares about. Right. And, but I think he was right. And I think I knew at the moment that he was right. I didn't want it to be right. Hmm. right. And that moment in my life, like that insight, I think was telling about a lot more than me. Right? It was saying something about me and kind of where, my, where I was. But it was a referendum on what our churches had become. Hmm. You know? And the... I'm just on Saturday, I was teaching that divine life, um, kind of a theology of ordained ministry, setting up a vision of the the ministry of the deacon, and and it just keeps coming up. If you read First and Second Timothy and Titus, it just keeps coming up. I mean, there's just no way to do apostolic ministry without catechesis, without apostolic teaching, and we're trying to rush to preaching, and prophecy, and prayer, and counsel. But you just you can't get ahead of the teaching. So to come back and say what you said just a, a, another way, your prayers will never be deeper than your teaching allows them to be. You know, your prophecies will never be sharper and clearer than your teaching allows the prophecies to be. Mm-hmm. And you know, your counseling will never be as nuanced and gentle. It will never be any more nuanced or gentle than your teaching is, and so on and so on and so on. Like for Christians, how we teach and what we teach is essential to everything else. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's call it off at that point. <laughs> if people stayed with us this long, <laughs> grace on them. I, I do, though, want to circle back soon and have a conversation about 
the role of ordained ministry taking up this teaching office because hmm. that's something else that we've offloaded to parachurch ministries. There are teachers hmm. who do their teaching, but again, that's seen as something it's a parachurch ministry that if you like it, you can pursue it. We don't see teaching as essential to what the church does in the world. Hmm. And, you know, for us, again, catechesis is not prophecy, but it, yeah. but it absolutely should be. Yeah. Thank you, Chris. Thank you. This is, this is a good talk and also the beginning of more good talks. <laughs> <laughs> Let's hope so. Thank you. Brother David, bless you.